Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A note for listeners. This episode contains graphic descriptions of rape and sexual assault. I was 11 years old and I was walking in uh, a gated community, actually, not even like a public street. And uh, I was walking with my friend and this uh, guy who was carrying laundry on a motorcycle, delivering laundry, was driving by and he slapped my ass so quickly and so harshly. And I, I remember when it happened, I just froze and I kept looking at him driving by like, does he know me? Did I, did I throw something in the street? Was he angry that I did that? What? I, I was really confused. And months and months later, uh, on, on media, because you know you're young, and you start to realize, oh my God, women's behinds are so sexualized. <laughs> this is probably why he did that. And the way I saw my body ever since that moment, I realized was just completely changed. I saw myself in a completely different way. Did you ever speak to your parents about what happened? No, never. So you didn't say to them, this man slapped me on no. the ass? It just definitely did not cross my mind as something I can bring up to my parents in the first place. I just felt like, you know, it's, it's always so deeply ingrained in the rhetoric that we use in Egypt that women need to be very conscious of how they're dressed. And so this, this like idea of taboo and daib and we can't talk about this just enables these crimes so much more. So Ayab, can you explain what it means? Um, I think the closest translation would be taboo, but there's also like... It's like rude. It's like rude taboo. It's like, oh, don't talk about that. It's, it's if you, like, like the word sex. You can't so say sex. Many, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, almost everything <laughs> is Aib. And it's used to silence girls about so many different things. And actually, any country you'll go to, they'll experience that. How does that experience differ, if it does, in Egypt? What's different about the experience here of women to other places? There's very little you can do about it in the moment that it's happening. There's very little you can do about it after it's happened. And you can never talk about it. I'm Hint Hassan, and this is Strongman, a show about power and control. Today, silence. And what happens when women in Egypt break hundreds of years of social code and speak out against sexual violence? Violence against women is a central tactic used by authoritarian regimes and governments all over the world. But the experience of women in one country has always stuck in my mind. In 2011, I, like much of the world, and especially those from the Middle East like myself, was captivated by what was happening in Egypt. Hosni Mubarak, the then president, had stepped down at the height of the Arab Spring. This felt like a moment 
a feeling of hope. But over the next months and years, things didn't get better. Activists were arrested, political dissent was quashed. Under the current president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, civil liberties have been further limited and journalists who don't toe the line also face prison time. There are many people in Egypt who've been reporting on this issue, despite it being a risk to their lives. But we knew that if we wanted to investigate the silencing of women under Egypt's current regime, we'd have to go there. So, along with producer Lema El Ariane, I went to Cairo, and what we uncovered offers an unprecedented look into one of the most infamous public cases in recent Egyptian history. The first person we talked to was Nadine Ashraf. No, 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 we're sorry. (laughs) So this is Nadine, she's just pulled up in her car. It's a cute little VW. There's no food or coffee or anything. Well, you have your coffee, so you're set. Nadine has also been getting a lot of attention lately. This story about women being silenced in Egypt has come to the surface partly because of her. I'm good now. And I just, I could not start my morning without at least, there's no meal, so at least a coffee. <laughs> well, you're with um, kindred spirits, because without coffee, my day is nothing. Okay, I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> we are, totally. She led us into her house, and we made our way into Nadine's room. It had large French windows and lace curtains. There were books lying in every corner, because Nadine is a college student. She created this Instagram page that has caught on massively. The handle is Assault Police, and it started last year when women in Egypt were being silenced after trying to speak up about a known predator. It led to women from all backgrounds and classes talking about their experiences of sexual harassment. A UN survey back in 2013 found that Egyptian women's experience of sexual harassment was one of the worst in the world. But we'll be focusing on two prominent cases which involve the country's elite. Because of who was involved, the stories captured Egypt's attention and exposed the country's misogynistic justice system. Tell me how this movement unfolded for you. Okay. Well, it goes a few years before July. So I went to this international school. And so ever since we were in uh, early high school, you'd always hear these stories of like, oh my God, this guy's creepy, this guy's really weird, he's such a weirdo. Nadine is talking about a boy named Ahmed Bassam Zaki, who's been stalking and harassing some of the girls in school. We'll call him ABZ. In 2016, the girls in the high school sign a letter that gets him suspended, but only for three days. And he goes on to university with little consequences. The high school didn't respond for comment. Then, two years later, in 2018, a Facebook post shows up. And she was like, this guy has been behaving very strangely with me. He's harassing me with phone calls. He's calling me at three and four in the morning. And he's asking me for extremely inappropriate things. This is really weird. So girls, please take care. The surprising part was that within a few hours, there were at least 50 comments on the post of girls commenting and saying, Oh my God, he did the same exact thing to me. Oh my God, he's been calling me at three and four in the morning. Oh my God, he's been asking me for nudes. and I don't even know him. Oh my God, he follows me around after class. Then, in 2020, another post shows up with similar accusations and Nadine is watching very closely. The day after, I think it's like one in the morning, and I check the post because I just want to see what's going on, if it got traction and all that, and it's not there. And 
I was just like, oh, you know what? Well, you know what? You got away with it in 2016. You got away with it in 2018. You got away with it just yesterday. I don't know how you keep getting away with it. You know what? I'm taking this outside our international schools. I'm taking this outside our university. I'm taking this outside our entire community. And I'm making it public. And let's see what you're going to do about it now. So just so after years of frustration, witnessing what he'd been doing to people at various universities, including your own, you reached a breaking point and you created a database. Exactly. And so I grabbed an eye, my iPad and I just put his picture in there with the catchiest, most annoying green I could think of to get people's attention. And I just showed Ahmed Basim's like sexual predator. Nadine sends the account to all her friends and then goes to sleep. I wake, woke up the next day. Um, I was up so late, uh, so I missed my, my midterm. And uh, I woke up and I just look at my phone and it is like bursting with notifications. And I'm like, what did I post on my story last night? I can't even remember. And I check and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, what, what happened? So your inbox is filled with with victims of his and and they're telling you what he did to them. Yeah. What did you do then? I was I was shocked, but the first thing that came to mind was I texted every single one of them like, hey, oh my God, I'm so sorry that you went through this. This is awful. Um, thanks for being so brave and uh, sharing your story. Do you mind if I screenshot this and post it so that other people would see what he's done and see that this is actually real and it's not just like a random person who's mad at him or whatever. And they were like, okay, but please don't share my name or my username or whatever. And I'd be like, yeah, okay. The avalanche of responses that Nadine was getting, it spoke to something bigger. Her viral page would go on to spark conversation from women around the country. The time for silence is over. Egyptian women are speaking out and they have rape and sexual assault in their crosshairs. At the same time, Nadine was desperately trying to keep up with hundreds of messages. And then, so what happened next? What, what did you do next? Um, what did I do next? Well, it was difficult for me to realise that this is something that could exist out of social media. Because while creating this, it was just like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm very angry, I'm frustrated, I feel awful and I feel silenced. At some point, I started having lawyers reach out to me, you know, like feminist lawyers who are like, hey, this is insane what's happening. Let me help. I want to help. Uh, you need lawyers to represent you. You know, you're going to have a lot of defamation lawsuits right now from, uh, from the man and his family and other people who don't like what, what you're doing. And you need legal help. I just wanted to make sure that more than anything... The lawyers cared about the girl's safety more than the case itself. After talking with the lawyers and looking at the evidence, only a handful of women had a clear-cut case against ABZ. Some of them, when they went there to the forensic doctors, they just felt like it was so emotionally taxing and they just decided that they couldn't carry on. Which again goes to say that so much of the protocol and the standard the laws and stuff is just extremely outdated and inappropriate and just needs to be fixed. Three days after Nadine put up the Instagram page in July 2020, ABZ was arrested. We weren't able to track down his lawyers for comment. 
the American University in Cairo that ABZ attended responded with no comment. And prosecutors say he will be held as six alleged cases are investigated. This was a big case in Egypt. For a police response to be so swift in a sexual harassment case was virtually unheard of until now. It set off a tidal wave. Another account called Assault Police encouraged women to share their stories anonymously. The reaction was swift. It felt like women could en masse finally talk openly about their experiences with harassment, like Egypt was having its own reckoning. And so to have a talk show host like uh, Amr Adib, who's huge, who's huge, you know, you, you could go as far as saying he's the, uh, oh, I don't know, who would you, what would you call maybe the Trevor Noah of Egypt, but like more popular and obviously not as leftist, <laughs> but extremely popular. Every Egyptian household listens to Amr Adib. To have him go on TV and say the sentence, no means no in English, it was revolutionary to hear an Egyptian man tell Egyptian men on Egyptian television that is broadcasted in every family home in Cairo say that. As of this month, ABZ has been sentenced to a total of 11 years in prison for sexual misconduct, attempted rape of minors and possession of drugs. The viral Instagram page, the hundreds of responses the swift arrest, it all seemed to happen so fast. But Nadine says she was just sharing what tons of women experience in Egypt. I was really angry (laughs) about sexual harassment being just an ongoing issue that I grew up experiencing every day of my life. And I was never able to do anything about it. And I never saw it being taken seriously. When, When you say that you've experienced it all your life, what do you mean? I mean, I think I think that every girl in uh, Egypt knows what it's like to have to think a million times every single day about what the best possible thing to wear when you're walking in the street or even walking from your house to your car without being sexually harassed and catcalled. There's a long history of women experiencing and speaking out against sexual violence in Egypt. So the way to um, silence voices of dissent historically has been if you can just publicly attack the women and shame them, you can socially control all activists. Delia Fahmi's work extensively covers how gender and politics play out. We talked about Egypt's history of silencing women when they speak out, starting with the Kifaya movement in 2004. We saw... um, the beginnings of this in the 2000s, when there was the start of the Kifaya movement, or Enough, um, was the name of the movement. This was the time with which the president, President Mubarak, wanted to extend emergency rule and limit um, electoral um, elections and electoral reform. In December that year, the first ever public anti-Mubarak demonstration was held on the steps of Cairo's High Court. We are not trying to take power. Then, at a protest in May 2005, women and journalists were sexually harassed and assaulted by plainclothes officers. They were reportedly receiving orders from the police who stood around and watched. It came to be known as Black Wednesday, and it would mark the latest chapter in the women's movement in Egypt. And so it's that symbolic moment that if we can attack women, mothers, daughters, and sisters, um, then we can actually control society. 
And this is the heart of the gendered nature of authoritarianism in a place like Egypt. Black Wednesday represents a significant moment where women were being violently pushed out of public spaces with the help of the state. But Mubarak's time in office wouldn't last much longer. This is a video of Asmat Mahfouz that helped spark the uprisings in Egypt. December 2010 was the beginning of what became known as the Arab Spring. It would soon mark the end of Mubarak's reign. And she says, I'm going down on January 25th, right? For the revolution. I'm going down. And I'm going down to fight for your dignity. The least you can do is come down to the square and protect my honor to fight for your rights. She makes a very gendered call. It's an, it's an important factor, isn't it? The honour of the woman, the so-called honour of the woman, how it's attached to the family, how it's attached to the men in the family. It's the questioning of, of chastity is really the questioning of the quality of society. And is, is this what you really want? And if you remember these, you know, so-called unchaste women, you know, the, the language was, they're the ones calling for your rights. A strategy Mubarak supporters used was to discredit women activists by shaming them. Humiliating so-called virginity tests, where doctors would examine the hymens of those brought in, were done to shame them in a society that directly links a woman's chastity to the family's reputation. There were also reports that mobs of male Mubarak supporters had been paid to sexually assault female protesters in Tahrir Square, none of whom ever saw justice. The power of honour in Egyptian society was once again used to silence women on the streets and in politics. This is an example of how the gendered nature of power creates conditions for the acceptance of harassment culture socially, because state-sponsored repression is backed up by a complete lack of accountability. That same attitude naturally reverberates throughout society, making way for the acceptability of gendered violence and subsequently silencing women and undermining their credibility. We'll be back after this break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Following another public incident of mass assault in 2014, this time at a celebration of Abdel Fattah el-Sisi's election, a law was introduced that criminalised sexual assault for the first time. 2014 was also the year of a horrific gang rape. At the time, no one was arrested, 
But that story resurfaced during the latest reckoning. It was the uh, infamous Fairmont case. So the Fairmont is a hotel where people would go and party? What? The Fairmont is like one of the most luxurious, iconic hotels in Cairo. It's in uh, Zamalek, beautiful island, you know, and it's overlooking the, the Nile. It's super luxurious, super exclusive. And so I remember in 2014, I was, I think, in the 10th grade, maybe, 10th grade, yeah. And I, I'd, I'd heard about the story. I, I knew what happened. I, not in details at all, of course, but I'd heard about this, like, ridiculous, insane thing that happened in the Fairmont. But when we were in Cairo, the producer I was working with, Lemma, got a message from a close friend of the rape survivor. Those close to the survivor say she's been repeatedly shamed and false accounts and rumours have circulated in order to try and undermine her because the case was getting too much international attention and made the government look bad. And also to support the rapist's argument that this was a case of debauchery, not rape. Yet the survivor can't speak out so her friend decided to speak to us instead to get the facts straight once and for all. We'll get into it. Um, but first of all, can you just like just like describe where we're sat, just like to get into the audio and whatever? Like, We met in a private location. And since we agreed not to use her voice, Lemma will read her end of the transcript. And from now on, we'll call her Sarah. What you're about to hear is the most comprehensive and accurate public account of what happened on the night of the gang rape in 2014 and the days and years after. Before we move on, I want to say that this story is difficult to walk through and potentially triggering for any survivor of sexual assault. Please take care while listening. The woman or the young woman that is at the centre of the Fairmont case, how old was she on that night that everyone's talking about? She had just turned 18. She was really young. And, and do you know, according to her, what happened on that night? Yeah, well, actually, it was a really famous party. Uh, the party was called Tea Dance, and the survivor was at the party with me and some of our friends. And usually, after we finished the party, everyone would have their room booked so that we can all after-party together. Sarah says these parties were so exclusive that you couldn't just pay to get in. You had to submit your Facebook so they could see who you were connected to. In other words, class mattered just as much as money. Once her friends got tickets, Sarah says they booked a room in the hotel for six or seven people. They'd use it for storage and after-partying, since no one was expecting to sleep much that night. So we had this room shared. And then the survivor came to me and she said, do you want to go to this after party? It's organized by my friends. And I was like, no, I'm good here. And she went. I don't really know what happened inside, but I can tell you what she told me. The after party was full of girls and guys. They were just drinking, listening to music. There was also a DJ there playing music in the suite. It was one of the biggest suites in the hotel. And um, they were just after partying. And then she told me she started to feel really dizzy. She was sitting on the chair. She couldn't move. She was feeling really dizzy. She couldn't function. And then she woke up the next day. She found herself in the room, naked, with five guys. One guy was dressed. The one guy that was dressed was her best friend. Four guys were naked. And it was the first time she had met them in her life. And they were known for dropping G in girls' drinks. G stands for GHB, 
or gamma-hydroxybutyrate. It's a sedative commonly known as a date-rape drug. One of the effects is loss of consciousness. She had no idea what was happening. She just got dressed and went home. She went to take a shower, and then she saw there was stuff written on her. There were things like slut and a dick drawn and stuff like that. She had no idea what could have been the situation, nothing, until she started hearing about it from her friends who saw the video, and then she started connecting all the dots. At what point this, did this video come about and what was this video? I saw the video and the video showed a completely unconscious girl lying on her stomach, completely unconscious, and four men are raping her. They were taking turns having sex with her. If one guy wasn't penetrating her, he'd be masturbating to her. And then after they finished, they wrote their names on her body while laughing, and we would hear the name of the guy filming it all. He was giving them instructions on where to stand and what to do. Whilst recording? Yeah. He was friends with the survivor, right? He was her best friend. Many, many people were thinking, oh, she deserved it. And it was common back then to say, no, she wasn't raped. She was doing it with her consent. And she just fell asleep in the middle. Sarah says the survivor went into a deep denial, refusing to acknowledge the rape. But then she discovered something that made what happened to her very real. Her period was late. She was pregnant. And she didn't know what to do, so she asked one of her other guy friends, who wasn't involved in any of this, for help. He got her the abortion pill that you can do at home without having to go to a doctor or anything. And it was the only option for her at the time. She took the abortion pill. After the pregnancy, she started taking it in. She disappeared completely. She changed her phone number. She withdrew. She didn't really care about Egypt or anything anymore. The survivor was traumatized. She felt violated, not just by the rapists, but the society around her. She never reported the crime to the police. Instead, she left the country. Five years later, in 2019, Sarah says the survivor came back to Egypt. She found a job right away. She really liked it. But she would like just every once in a while, just cry for no reason. And she always acts really tough. But everyone knows on the inside she's a very kind and soft person. And then one day she came and she told me, you know that rape? I have to do something about it. And she kept thinking and she kept telling me, like, imagine this fucking kid getting all of this backlash. What would happen to my rapists? And she got really motivated. She felt like something was happening. She thought this was her time. It's 2020 and ABZ's arrest has just resurfaced a conversation about assault in Egypt. Sarah says the survivor felt hopeful about her own case and made a plan. She wanted to file a formal complaint and then go to the prosecutor's office with the video to press charges. Everyone was looking for that video, including Nadine, the woman who runs the Instagram account that ousted ABZ as a predator. And to have a massive platform, I just want to get the video sent to me, I want to give it to the girl, she files a police report, everything's good, and then we can take it to social media. 
So uh, you, you'd asked for the video. How quickly did you get it? We never got it. Our team tried searching for the video, and we didn't get it either. But we have seen screenshots from the recording. The police claim they still don't have it. It may be justice long overdue. After six years, prosecutors in Egypt are now ordering the arrest of a group of men allegedly involved in a gang rape at Cairo's five-star Fairmont Nile City Hotel in 2014. With the Fairmont case, four of the six alleged rapists were arrested. Most of them had tried to flee, and two are believed to still be on the run, one in Europe and one in America. But then, the survivor and those around her became the victims of a targeted campaign to try and undermine them. We knew there was a recording between the survivor and four of her witnesses. Sarah's talking about audio of a meeting between the survivor, witnesses and a lawyer that was secretly recorded and then leaked to the press by someone at the meeting. It was a three-hour conversation, and then they started cropping parts of the recording to make it sound like she's a slut, a bad girl, to make it sound like she deserved the rape. And that audio went public. It was everywhere. Everyone was just forwarding it to everyone. The aim of leaking this was to discredit the survivor. In the following days, witnesses and supporters of the survivor were also targeted by the country's notorious secret service. So the police asked the witnesses and supporters of the survivor to come to the station. The Egyptian authorities told them to come to the police station so that they could protect them. And at this point, there are no charges. They're just being held. But then, they're not released. They disappeared for 48 hours. The families don't know where they are. They don't know what's happened to them. Their families thought they were dead. Meanwhile, Sarah says the survivor had to undergo a traumatic physical exam, even though it had been years after the attack. And based on what she told me, they were both awful. So the first time she went, it was the day her friends, all her friends, got detained, and she had no idea where they were. And people were just coming in, nobody was knocking. But she didn't care at the time because her friends were detained, and that's where her mind was at. Just like the virginity tests, which took place around the Arab Spring, the aim of this process and examination was to shame, humiliate, and break the resolve of the women involved. The medical examiners asked her to do like several positions, like the doggy position to check her asshole, if she had like anal sex before, which she hadn't, and she told them that. And they were just checking her vagina over and over, and she was just completely naked. She only had a fucking dirty blanket. It was so disturbing that she was crying the whole time, and the doctor was treating her like in a really dirty way, and all she could think about was her friends who got arrested. Six witnesses and supporters of the survivor were arrested. Some spent months in custody. As of today, they've all been released, but still face vague charges that have nothing to do with the gang rape. And as of this recording, the police have not responded for comments on any of the accusations Sarah made. This had a massive chilling effect on the wave of hope that women were riding on, and for some, 
reinstated the cloak of silence they thought had begun to be lifted. Why would the state do that? Why would the state prosecute, charge individuals who are working towards achieving justice towards, for a woman who has been gang raped? The survivor is a regular person in the state. Well, she's not poor, she's extremely rich, but she comes from an A-class family. But she doesn't bring any profit to the government. So I guess the problem is with greater justice, with these movements that push for greater justice and push for people to be held accountable for the actions that they take, there's also a big threat mm -hmm. to the state or to the government. And that is the fact that with justice, it means that anyone is a target. Do you believe, given all of this, that justice will be served for the woman who was raped in the Fairmont Hotel back in 2014? She wanted to get her, her justice back. Now she just wants to be safe, you know? That's what the state put her into. She just wants to be safe. She just doesn't want to get arrested for any fucking irrelevant reason. You went from a moment where you were like, this is incredible what we're watching, I feel empowered. Now you feel scared. What the hell were we thinking? That's what we feel. We were just laughing like, ha, I remember when we thought we could actually make a difference. We were so naive. Like, how the hell were we so stupid? This is what we think. What did you miss? What was it that you feel like you missed? We were unrealistic. We were too nice. We thought Egypt was actually going to change. But it's never going to change with this system. So we just know it's a hopeless case. We were naive, I swear. We were really naive. And I would never encourage any girl to come forward in Egypt. That's a big thing to say, isn't it? That's, a, that's devastating to hear, actually, considering the positivity around this movement. And the Fairmont victim would regret. Yeah. Yeah, she regrets going forward 100%. Why is it in the interest of authoritarian governments or governments that are tending towards authoritarianism as well to protect the patriarchal status quo? Why is it in their interest? If you think about it like this, in very simple terms... This is Delia Fehmi again. If they can relegate rules on the everyday lived experiences of women in their own homes and beyond, then they can relegate rules of behavior within society. This is the way authoritarianism becomes gendered in nature. And so if the state externally can relegate and dictate the behavior of women in their private sphere, then they can actually chill all of social and political activity. And so the easiest way for the state to have a chilling effect on society is to target women. And so this becomes the way with which the next level of social control is going to be, and it's going to be in cyberspace. What we saw this summer, the explosion of the Me Too movement in Egypt, um, was another one of those moments where the state actually has to respond. Last month, one of the rapists was suddenly released from jail. Those connected to the Fairmont case are distraught, disillusioned, and understandably losing faith. 
our reporting exposes the continued overt and brazen methods used by the Egyptian government to block justice, which in this case includes equating witnesses with rapists. The most recent report by Human Rights Watch accuses officials of misogynistic motivations which has successfully stalled justice. Nadine also struggles with the size of the battle that's being fought, but for now she remains inspired and tentatively hopeful that the bravery of the women coming forward, like Sarah and the Fairmont survivor and the thousands who've reached out to her to speak out, is having an impact. These accounts may involve a very elite crowd, but the repression and silence caused by male-dominated power structures reflect a deeper, more widespread system of injustice that's experienced by many Egyptian women. You've dealt with like two huge cases. What are you seeing come in, or have you, in terms of like impact, are people using, for example, social media more to record sexual harassment, or uh, what are you? What what's coming into your inbox at the moment in terms of cases? Well, I think the best thing to come out of all this is that I have been seeing Egyptian women document sexual harassment and assault and all kinds of things on their phone mo- phones more. And it's something that I really encourage since a lot of women are scared of uh, fighting back or responding. Sexual violence is everywhere in the world. But the problem in Egypt is that we're silent about it. And because you are silenced, people are emboldened, men are emboldened to... Do, do more. It, do it more. To carry on and we, we enable it. Why do you keep going? I mean, honestly, I feel like I was at a point and I am at a point where if I just stop talking about it, people would really panic and they would feel like, oh, if she was forced to shut up about it, that must be a sign that I really can't talk about it either. And so I feel like the least I could do, the least I, I owe it is to keep continuing and to keep showing people that don't be scared. What a huge pressure for a 22-year-old to <laughs> have on their shoulders. Yeah, I mean, if you don't do it, who else is going to? <laughs> we saw this over and over during the course of making this series. How Not only does power get abused at every level of society, but that people push back at every level too. On one hand, this speaks to a serious breakdown in state and government institutions that are supposed to protect people's rights, which means that individual people and civil society end up stepping in to fill the void because, well, there's no alternative. And it also speaks to the presence of another kind of power, collective power. The power of organising, not so that one person or group can impose their will, but so that power is distributed more equitably. Because these individuals whose stories we shared, their experiences are unique. And yet, on any given day, similar narratives are playing out all over the world. And the moments where they were able to push back and reclaim their story, it's almost always involved tapping into that collective. But something else happened while we were making the series. The people who worked on this project and the people we talked to about it, we all started to think of authoritarianism not just as some abstract concept from a political science class or as something that applies only to dictators and heads of state, 
and instead we started to see it as a series of behaviours and ways of acting towards each other that are present in every part of our lives. From the level of society and organisations to everyday interactions and personal relationships. Maybe it's the guy who trolls you online or the colleague who makes your work life a nightmare or the partner who pushes you to your limits and then says they're doing it for your own good. Or maybe, sometimes, it's you. That is what we hope you'll walk away with. A larger sense of how power and control are used in society and also in your own life. The way power is wielded over you and the way that maybe you wield power over others. People aren't born corrupt, but we are born into a system. And that system is set up to grant power to certain people, to keep everyone else down, and to make each of us feel like maybe that's just the natural order of things. And seeing that system for what it is, at every level, is the first step to taking it apart. Strongman is a production of Vice News. It's hosted and reported by me, Hint Hassan. Stephanie Karayuki is our senior producer. Our field producer is Lema El Arian. Our producers are Peter Langstanton and Pulavi Kotamasu. Our associate producer is Sam Egan. Sound design and original score by Pran Bandi. Annie Aviles is our executive producer. Kay Osborne is the VP of Vice Audio. Special thanks to Michelle Harris for fact-checking. Thanks also to Delia Fehmi and the sound company London. Our senior production manager is Janet Lee. Production coordination from Stephanie Brown. Thanks to Ashley Cleek, Ramon Campos, Sophie Kazis, Steve Bone, Kyle Murdoch, Jen Kinney, and everyone else at Vice Audio for their insight during the course of this series. Thanks also to Vinicius Kahadu, Sung Piao Hong and the rest of our artwork team, and to Victoria Duncan and the rest of the team in translations. Thanks also to Leah Jacino in archival. A final thanks to Sarah M. Broom, Katie Rekdal, Drew Bergiotti, Bina Palikal, Lucy Croning, and Nada Al Said. For resources on sexual harassment and assault, head to rain with two ends.org. We know that podcasts say this all the time, but if you could please take a moment to rate and subscribe. It helps others to find the show and it helps us to keep bringing you podcasts like Strongman. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 